Michael and Winifred Bexler. <laughs> and uh, where are we? We're on Railroad Street. Skinny Atlas, New York. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Well, thank you for coming. So, what is it about monotype? Well, okay, in the very beginning, I didn't know what monotype was, although I can remember very well on a field trip in sixth grade, seeing a monotype caster, this crazy machine, things going all over the place, Mm -hmm. mechanically, springs, levers, pins, and so forth, and somehow, miraculously, this type was emerging from it. I remember seeing that very well. I was interested in printing, and I liked to to work with my hands and tools and so forth, and I thought, um, how annoying to see this machine and not understand how it works and so forth. It seemed very complicated. Uh, but many years went by before I ne- saw my next machine, and that was when I was at RIT, uh, School of Printing. But I was really interested in doing book printing, and I was encouraged and excited uh, by the spirit of the Grabhorn Brothers in mm-hmm. San Francisco, the Grabhorn mm-hmm. Press. But I could see... Well, what was it about that? You just thought it was beautiful, or what was it? Beautifully done in a very fun and uh, artistic spirit of trying to come up with something really beautiful, physically, a pleasure to hold and look at, and so forth. And these things were important to you at an early age. I wonder why. Well, I first began seeing the Grabhorn Press books at RIT, but I had heard about the Grabhorns before I got there. So their books were very, very unlike the kind of trade books that most of us would see in a bookstore. You wouldn't find one of their books in a bookstore. They're mostly (laughs) pre-subscribed. But was it your parents that kind of were excited by books, or where did it come from? (sighs) What do I say? (laughs) What? My father was a dentist. No one in the family was a printer. No one whatsoever. I don't know where it came from. Um, I like to work with my hands. Um, I like not only being captain of my own ship, but owning the ship as well. Right, <laughs> right. The other thing, too... Making the ship. What about making yeah, the ship? Yeah, building the ship. Yeah, in <laughs> fact, that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. Uh, because we bought this building. Uh, we started the shop in 1973 outside of Boston in Somerville, but we there's a lot of weight here, a lot of work in moving a letterpress shop, so... You don't want to lose your lease and have to move every three, four, five years. We really, really wanted to buy a building. Successful, particularly booksellers, if they can buy the building, then they're they're not held to ransom. Yeah, renting is very expensive. So anyway, we we bought the building. But you still haven't answered. You thought you just it just sort of came to you out of the blue, like a like an angel. Or something. Well, um, like, why do you? Why were you excited by the Grabhorn books? Um, I'm been sidetracked here. Um, we bought the building, and it was a wreck. So about half of my time over the last thirty years has not been in printing and casting type, but it's been in carpentry and plumbing and electricals, rebuilding this place. Okay. Winnie and I put the floor down here that we're sitting on. It didn't exist. The building was built in 1867 and had only a dirt floor in here. The windows were a wreck. The brick was black, so we had to sandblast it. A lot of work went into building this 
room, the composing room, our apartment upstairs, and the facilities in the new addition. Okay. Uh, in the other room there where the casting equipment is. Um, so, yes, I'm probably um, was as involved in building the shop as much as in, in, in running it, learning to cast type and so on and so forth. Okay. Is that right? What, what have I said wrong? Well, I think you've been devoted, even before we moved here, to the actual manual handling of the machines, the deep love of the equipment, the joy of just working the mechanics of it, and seeing that beautiful product of a beautiful type coming out. And that was a love from the beginning, and it started very early in your life. I don't know how or why it got started, but I remember my first printing press was a Kelsey press. Others About have said 11 that, yeah. years old, 12 yes. years old. And it <laughs> sort of teased me into looking for something that was bigger and better, always. And eventually I found a small Kelly cylinder press. One thing led to another college, RIT, and so on and so forth. And I think I'm very lucky. I seem to be one of these people who came along the right person at the right time. Mm. Because all this equipment years ago would have cost a fortune new. And in the late 60s, in the 1970s, it was being sold off mostly as junk. Because and everyone was going to offset, everyone right? Everyone was getting rid of it. Yeah. It was perfectly good equipment. My first Vandercook cost, I think, about $500. And now... We've had offers of six, seven, eight thousand dollars for it. Better than most investments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, the type was the most expensive proposition for any letterpress shop. Uh, the Grabhorns handset a lot of their books. Some of their books were machine set at Mackenzie and Harris, now known as M and H. But um, I realized back at in the late sixties at RIT that one would have to have their own typesetting and typecasting facilities to really be able to do book work in the future. Again, you wanted to be the master of your own ship then, yes. right? Yes, and if you're only doing 100 or 200 copies, the, the cost of buying composition is just prohibitive. So I realized that I'd have to have my own monotype equipment, cast my own type. I bought several fonts of, of Victor Hammer's American Angel type and spent... Uh, one of my last Christmas vacations at home from school, hand-setting a book. And I had enough type to set only one page at a time. So I would set it, print it on the Kelly B, distribute it and reset another page. And there were about 20-some pages, all hand-set in 18-point American Uncle. And I had just enough time, two days before the vacation was over, to finish the last page, pack it all up, and head by bus back to Rochester. And I was setting the last page, and I ran out of sorts. I didn't have enough letters. Mm. My whole Christmas vacation was destroyed. <laughs> My Christmas card, which was about a week or two late at that time, wasn't received ultimately until sometime in March, mm -hmm. I think. Mm. I thought, I have to cast my own type. Which is unusual. I, that's, you know, there aren't that many people that go to that extent, do they? Well, a lot of people did in this country, the grab horns and so forth people working for the various presses that provided the typesetting and printing for the limited editions club. Mm -hmm. uh, this book was all handset at Anskade in Europe. Labor was really cheap in the 20s and 30s, I think. 
So anyway, this equipment was available for a shoestring, and so we were able to get a start. So did you buy a monotype machine? The very first one out there, which I use at least once a week usually, I got for free as junk. Okay, and that was in 1967 or 68. Um, the next one I had to pay $150 for. <laughs> Much of the equipment here was 100 200 $300. Right. But we sunk a fortune, uh, oftentimes money we didn't have, into buying the new matrices from England. And that was what really gave us work. So, and you would not find those available around here, certainly, in this country, secondhand. Centaur, Bembo, Dante, the great classic uh, English book faces, which people still want today and are willing to pay for. And if you're going to invest in a case of type, you should buy something that has real value. Let's just get this clear here. The monotype machine, how do you make the type? Because the monotype machine isn't, does it sort of recycle? Here. It has a it, crucible, a it, pot of that's right, and, it, metal. and it, you just let out, and you, you set, print it. you print, and then and you yes, we recycle back. it. Much of the type metal we have and use here, we've been using for twenty or thirty years, right? Well, maybe since the beginning, but from but year what, to so year, what do you sell? You 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 do you make the type? Well, we sell a number of things. We sell the type in fonts. Some shops buy the type already set in composition, such as Crispin. And okay. then he may handset some of it himself, but 90% of it is set by machine here. Some people ask us not only to set the type, but then print it, a book. And that's what Winnie's working on here for Peter Bogardus. What's the name of that book? Is this it? Well, anyway... Yeah, some some books are set and printed here as well. Okay. In the case of the Limited Editions Club, I guess we ultimately designed, set, and printed them here, and then Winnie would hand-bind them here. Can you tell me a bit about the monotype company? The company I'm most familiar with is the one in England, different from the American Lanston Company. The one in England serviced the world. Uh, the world was its market. Machines all around the world. The, United, the American company... Uh, was limit, limited itself to North American sales. Mm -hmm. Well, not even that, because uh, much of the monotype equipment in Canada, of course, came from England. Uh, but they had two very different approaches to their machinery and what they wanted to do. And it's mostly my opinion, I guess, but um, the English were always trying to make things better and better. And they were very greatly influenced by number of people, like Eric Gill, for instance, but Stanley Morrison in particular, to undertake these programs of coming up with traditional great classic typefaces. Whereas the American company was more interested in advertising commercial typefaces. Was that because that's where their market was? Like I think so, yeah. So a more decorative of kind of... company, I think, was supported by work came from Cambridge and Oxford University Presses. I think some of their types were first initially cut in England for those presses, and they would pay for much of the initial work. Mm, but the American company was a little different and not quite so good technically. Letters didn't always align in the mats. Typefaces weren't as, as, as attractive. So maybe. Well, I should explain that the size is not the, the, 
the consideration here. Both companies made machines that cast type up to 72 points. And we cast type here to 72 on an English-British machine called a supercaster. But the American Lanston Company had a, an equivalent machine called a giant caster that would go to 72 point. It was in the uh, design of the typefaces that uh, uh, the biggest difference, I think, exists. Is that right, Willie? And can you define the difference then a bit, a bit more? Is it, you're saying that they were more refined in England. They were they were more interested in you say getting better. What what does that mean? Oh, um, I'm being a little sloppy, I suppose. But technically, in as far as making the matrices, their molds, the machinery, and so forth, mm. the English always tried to make it better and better, re- refine it. If if a part had a uh, propensity to break they would redesign it make it with a harder metal or something but I also was talking about and meant the design of the typefaces in the American company for instance they would want to make as large a face as they could get on a mat on a little you have to understand what a mat or matrix is in monotype in order to do that they took the five lowercase letters that have descenders the G, the J the P and Q and the Y, and they trimmed them way down real short so they could make the rest of the letter much larger. And in doing that, they ruined the design and appeal of the type. So it was less about design and more about what? The uh, English company would figure out how the letters would look best, and then they would go backwards and try to adapt them mechanically. The American company would make a lot of mechanical adjustments. They would design the type to fit the limitations of the mechanics. Right, okay. The English would design the type without consideration for certain limitations. Then they would figure out how it could be done, and they did it. So there were many different iterations of the monotype machine then, because they were constantly, little bit, little constantly bit. tinkering they, with yeah, it and improving it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, whereas the American... It's a little on the technical side, without showing you specifically, but yeah, the English uh, machinery and matrices and molds and so forth were just so well-made and designed and refined. And We have and use mats here that were made before World War II. And uh, with care, they last forever. What are they made out of? Brass, which may sound a little soft, but it's easily punched and very hard next to lead. Or the alloy for tight metal, which is a lot more than just lead. It's tin and antimony as well. And where'd you find these things? You figured, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the world's greatest collection of these, so, or one of them. Where am I going to, where do I find them? Well, in the 70s, when a lot of this equipment was being sold off and scrapped, replaced with the future, which eventually was digital typesetting, um, we occasionally found some of the English mats in this country, but we, as I said earlier, we, most of them we bought new. That's where we put our money. We bought the, the mats new from England because they didn't exist or really weren't common here. Type cases, Vandercooks, casters and keyboards were available. We could find those pretty cheaply. Mm-hmm. Do you, so did you go and find 
places that were getting rid of their monotype. Sure, yeah, yeah. and some sometimes, yeah. For instance, we got a tip in 1980 that a firm in Minneapolis was getting rid of two of their English supercasters. This is a thirty-six, forty thousand dollar machine in 1960s prices, and no one wanted these things in 1980. So I flew out there, rented a U-Haul truck. I got both of their supercasters for six hundred dollars each. Every time I use them, it pays for itself. <laughs> That's the machine that we were on which we were casting the 24-point Lombardic initials. Okay. Yeah, that galley of Lombardic initials will cost as much or more than what the caster cost. But then not too many people have the mats to cast that typeface. Yeah. Or the, the building to keep it maintained, set up, electricity, running water, a drain, ventilation, so forth. Uh, the matrices, then... Uh, that sort of fits into the the monotype machine, and it it makes the type. Then okay, yeah, I have to understand and realize a lot of people don't know what a monotype machine is or have yeah. seen one. It looks initially a little frightening. It's somewhat complex, but all late nineteenth century mechanics. Nothing really electrical about it. Just springs, cams, levers, and so forth all timed to some gears. So uh, many, many things are happening all at once, but they're all beautifully synchronized, and they stay synchronized uh, so that this machine can cast individual characters and spaces of type into justified lines of type. Mm -hmm. Justified, flush left, right, centered, and so on and so forth, in a variety of sizes and typefaces. The machine itself is just a, a casting machine. We have to put a mold on it to gives the machine a certain body so like 12 point type or 14 point type and, and so then, you've got yeah so all these molds are they fit in depending they're interchangeable on, yeah. on the machine depending yeah. on the size of the type we want to cast right and uh then we have to insert into the machine what's known as a mat or matrix case or in england it's sometimes referred to as a die case but it's a steel frame in which the mats or matrices are held that's 18 point perpetua okay so we have dozens, we have a lot of those um, for yes. our various typefaces, one for each size and each typeface. That's Perpetua, and we have many other sizes of Perpetua, smaller, 18 is the largest. But they all fit into that same size of steel frame mat case, and they're configured or organized in the mat case from the top down based on the width. So at the very top, you see the period, the comma, very narrow characters. As you mm-hmm. go down the mat case, you come to the wider uh, set-wise characters like the capital M and capital W and so forth. But that mat case is then directed automatically in the machine with each revolution over the top of a mold in which through the bottom is injected a squirt of molten tight metal and it forms, of course, the body. But the particular mat from that mat case which is held on top of the mold then determines the letter. A, B, C, whatever, okay? Mm -hmm. The whole machine is run by a ribbon of perforated paper, much like a player piano, which comes off of one of these keyboards. So Mm -hmm. the monotype system really involves two machines, a keyboard and a caster. And you have to be pretty pretty proficient. Uh, It's not just a question of typing to operate it. Um... 
I guess not. No, you have to understand a little bit what's going on. There's no screen, no way of seeing what you've done mm-hmm. here at the keyboard. The keyboard goes back to 1900. All this stuff is 19, late 19th century technology. Mm-hmm. So when we're keying lines, we have, to be, we have to concentrate, think of what we're doing, and not get lost. So you need more of a memory then that uh, a little bit I think yeah, yeah you can't uh, that's what keeps you so sharp be, then. be distracted uh, in in keyboarding the guy who who came up with this must have been a f- genius well he, there were some initial ideas for a machine like this from a fellow by the name of Tolbert Lanston, but really the final working machine that they were able to build and market ultimately around the world was the result, I think, of about 15 years of engineering trial and error on the part of several brilliant mechanical engineers. They would decide what was the best course to take in solving a mechanical problem, and they would work it out. It, this isn't something that was just invented by one person right. in a year or two. The monotype system probably took closer to 15 So it was a team of engineers within it, it the really company. It really was, yeah, yeah. yeah. The name Lanston is attached because he was the very first person to come along and think of of a system like that. You have to understand that from 1440, when the first Bible was printed and the whole concept of handset type uh, started, until the end of the 19th century, everything was set by hand. Bibles were set in six-point type or even smaller. I can't imagine it. Well, Um, you know, the the thing, too, is that there was... Obviously, there would have been a lot of resistance to this machine because it would have put a lot of people out of work. About 25 or 30 people were replaced by this machine. The machine not only set type, but it cast and made the type. So it was in itself a a little foundry. When the type was done, it wasn't distributed. It was just melted down, recycled. So it really was a a fabulous system. Sort of self-contained. But within 70 years, it was obsolete. And yet, I mean, you just handed me this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in the other room, we have uh, uh, at least a hundred or so of those things, all with very, very great, fine, valuable, famous English faces like Gil Sands, Baskerville, Garamond, Van Dyke, Bembo, in a variety of sizes. Some, in some cases, as in the case of Bembo or Wallbound, we go from eight point to seventy-two point. We have every size that Monotype ever made. But just holding it, it's got right such... What? I... <laughs> What's the matter? Um, I want to make sure I'm not misleading you or saying something here that's confusing. No, um, no. I'm, I mean, I get confused pretty easily, and, and you're not confusing me, so... Well, the monotype machine is just a, a machine to mechanically cast type. Yeah. It's the ma- ma- matrix case, the mat case that you put into the machine yeah. that determines whether it's... Um, what it looks, what the type w- looks like. What it like. is. It yes. could be some and, kind of an adverti- newspaper type that um, is appealing or useful more for newspapers than anything else. Or it could be some elegant script or something. Yeah. Or what they refer to as four-line or four-level mathematics. Yeah, um, I mean the machine can set Greek and uh, Farsi and Hebrew and so forth. It's just a matter of how you kind of set it up and encode it. Well, and again, that's sort of a shop would typically maybe have what a dozen max different 
matrices for different yeah types. different fonts or typefaces fonts oh, yeah now, fonts. so but where you've gone different is, typefaces and different sizes you've gone that and that would be a typical shop and so who would typically use these monotype machines it would be newspapers i guess or well uh, of course understand before offset came along everything was letterpress and it yeah. had to be set yeah. in metal type now linotype was the fastest and simplest and that's yeah. what's, what was usually used for newspapers and book publishing and so on and so forth mm. complex typography and very demanding texts sometimes uh, were easier set in in monotype because the letters and spaces were all individual right and you could with tweezers remove certain characters and replace them mm. with strange accented characters or something yeah Something you could do more easily in monotype than you could do in linotype, where the entire line is cast as a slug. Yeah. So yeah. monotype was incredibly versatile. So who would typically own these monotype machines then? Like Almost your local the, printer? Well, in England and in Europe, just about everyone who did printing. This yeah. was the way to set type. It dominated the world then. Um, outside of the United States, inside the United States, they pr seem to prefer the linotype machine more. Okay. There are two competing typesetting systems, monotype and linotype, and they both have advantages and disadvantages. Were they owned by different companies or the same company? Well, in this country, there, were, there was one monotype company, and then there was one company called Mergenthaler Linotype, and I don't know too much about that history. In England, there was a branch of linotype, and there was another, another machine almost identical to the linotype called the inner type. And I imagine they kind of stole patents from each other because the machines were well patented, but they were almost identical. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but my interest from the very beginning was really in single type composition, yeah. which was the closest you could get to setting type by hand. The monotype machine gave you the flexibility of, of hand typesetting and the efficiency of what? Yeah, monotype really is mechanized hand composition. Mm -hmm. And um, as long as you have the mat to cast the character in one way or another, you can incorporate it into the whatever you're setting. Mm -hmm. And so people would come to us with strange jobs, and I think this might be one of them, which we probably should have turned down. It's really complex. And a, which a, one's this? A, or do you want to talk about it? Maybe well, not. We can't Let's say. not do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll just get okay. in trouble. Yeah, let's you not know. get into but, trouble. Um, just because we can do it, we say, yes, sure, we can do it. Right. right. Uh, but I, we have to realize that doing it and earning a living are two different things. So we'll do it. We'll do a nice job on it and so forth. But when it's all done, one of us will look at the other and say, never again. <laughs> and then six months later, you'll go ahead and do something. Well, just some as, other job will yeah, come in. It's right. entirely different, but yeah. also complex. And because we can do it, the versatility and flexibility and monotype composition is so profound. Okay, yeah. so you went out and you you got the monotype machines. You then decided, hey, I'm going to get as many different matrices as, as I can so that... What, so who do you provide with the, just the type? Is it all the hand type people that you... There was always an, a, a number of printers in the country that wanted metal type and certain typefaces, which are, were difficult to find and buy. Mm. Bembo. I was, I think, the first and 
maybe the only one of two people in the United States to ever have Dante, for instance, a really nice type that came along late in mono, monotype history in the mid-1950s, when most people who had invested in monotype were no longer investing. They were thinking of the future and newer technology. So Dante, a really beautiful typeface, never had a chance to be to be used widely, such as a face like Baskerville or even Caslin, and that goes back to the 1920s. But what my real interest in the beginning was in letterpress printing and not trying to do job work, but trying to do really fine book work. Very satisfying and rewarding. What are you most proud of early on then that you produced? Winnie, what's the answer? <laughs> Boy. This is the most difficult. Um, that's the most comp- one of the most complex things we ever did. Dickens' The Gimbal Collection. Yeah, it's a bibliography with a lot of complex bibliographical symbols in it that we weren't able to put in at the keyboard. We had to put them in by hand later with tweezers. <laughs> and the proofreading was a little difficult. And it was a, it was a big job. This was early on? Well, this was one of the first in 1973, 1974 big jobs that we got. Because one other person who was capable of doing it tried and gave up, and we were the second person and the only other person who could do it. Mm-hmm. So, so we did it. So tell me then about that sense of satisfaction. What is In it In the then? beginning, it was a dream of being able to do this kind of work okay. and earn a living. Right. Because everyone else would just kind of raise their eyebrows and walk away from me if I said, hey, I want to go into the monotype business. They just shake their head. It was ridiculous. I mean, people were yeah. junking this stuff. But for me, it was a dream. And Winnie and I sort of began this journey not knowing where the hell we were going. But it's what I really, really wanted to do. And I, it was amazing. Somehow, month by month, oftentimes through the help of friends and acquaintances, we would have work to do and we did it. And we did as much as we could by ourselves and managed to limp along. So it is a little bit quixotic then. It's like everyone sort of suggested that you were (laughs) a bit crazy. They may have. I never heard that. (laughs) But uh, we embarked on a a road that was opposite to where everyone else was going, okay? okay? Everyone was going into the future, and I was interested in going backwards into the past. And in a sense, this whole shop today is sort of a working museum. People come in here in modern printing and don't understand what we're doing, have a clue about this stuff. And yet um, it's, it's, it's sort it's, of a pinnacle, though, it, isn't it? It's it, all it, 70 or 80 years it, back technology. It, but the technology is so fantastic. It's, it's not a question yeah, of improving it on it, is it? No, really? I mean, no, it's producing... What, what's sad is the British monotype company... <sighs> Um, brought this technology to total perfection Mm. at the very time it was becoming obsolete. So Mm. the machinery we bought wasn't in the least bit worn out or it had no value commercially because it had been replaced technologically. Um, In fact, what's amazing about this, the number one caster that I got for free was made in the 1930s. And while we've replaced some parts on it over the years, it runs as well today as it ever ran. I mean, these things came from an age when machines were made Mm -hmm. not to wear out. And if something wore out or broke, they would re-engineer it, redesign it, and make it so it wouldn't break 
or wouldn't wear out. Mm-hmm. And if that didn't succeed, then they would provide you with a lot of backup parts. And they'd say, every 10 years, you're going to have to replace this. Mm-hmm. So we have boxes and boxes of parts that were bought for 100 years from now. <laughs> and it's, that is so opposite to the throwaway mentality that we have today. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really is. And well, this equipment cost a lot of money, and uh, it was made to run, in some cases, in two or three shifts um, in a plant. They, they paid for it. They were going to get their money out of it. Just run it. Don't. I mean, it's mechanical. It's, mm-hmm. It doesn't have to sleep at night. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, in a way. It, it put a lot of humans out of work, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. Actually, it gave the printing trade much more potential to do things. And I don't think people were put out of work so much as the trade exploded with the ability to... I mean, they made huge cylinder presses so they could now print encyclopedias and so forth far cheaper than before. Which, again, had such an impact on world knowledge and bringing information to the masses and all sorts of things. Yes, there was a love of the machinery yeah, and yeah. the work, and 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 but there's and such perfection too, right? Yeah, a sure. love of well, yep. these machines the, are so wonderful. Well, it's not just the machines; it's the designing and printing of things as well. Mm. You're always searching for what is the best and trying to put it all together. And at the same time, while everyone else is moving forward with different te- modern technology to earn a living, to pay our bills, and so forth. A shop like this uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago would have employed about 10, 12 people. And Winnie and I work here part-time, in a sense, now in this day and age. All of this around here is being managed by just the two of us. Many of the casters and a lot of this equipment will sit for months and months before there's a call for a specific typeface in a certain size and so forth, like 18-point perpetual. We have it, we can do it, no one else around here, and in the, with perhaps one or two exceptions, basically no one else can do it. Yeah, and the market isn't that big, so, uh, but we're the only ones to have a lot of these typefaces, so mm-hmm. people who are looking for something very specific, eventually our name comes up. Crispin, for instance, wanted uh, 12-point Joanna. No one else has it. In fact, very few people in the world have it. So that was your trick, then. You wanted to monopolize the market, then. That's sort of a business decision. And, and uh, no, I bought Joanna because I loved the face <laughs> and everything else. And there are faces we po- bought that have no market whatsoever, right. that cost a lot of money, but we bought them anyway, yeah. like Fabritas. Well, it's, yeah. al- it's almost know? like col- you're a collector, right? No you, one wants Octavia right. for but Fabritas. You're, you're a completionist, least, right? You wanted to kind of get a, all of the all of well, them on a type. it's like collecting stamps. Yeah. You won't realize the value of your collection until it's sold. Well, it's not going to be sold until you die. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff around here that we, or I bought and acquired, uh, not because it made economic sense. In fact, it was almost economically <laughs> suicidal. But it was what I wanted to do, right. to complete the cycle and the direction yeah. and so forth yeah. on this road we've taken. So, so do you I'm have... further away from my classmates today than than ever before. I, what I'm, does that mean? I'm, well, they've. I graduated from RIT in '69, and everyone in the class was going into digital typesetting. wasn't yet 
available, but mm. it was on the horizon. And that's where people were focused, computers and so offset printing and so forth. I thought, gee, if I could cast my own type and do small editions on a Vanner Cook or other press, I'd be doing what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I just hoped that I could earn a living, as a few others people, as a few others had done. So, And Joe Blumenthal said that um, really good printing uh, will always have a market somewhere to, su- to support it. We obviously chose a craft, though, rather than a business that promised riches. So, But it was amazing. We've actually, for 40 years, I think, <laughs> been able to kind of pay, make ends meet. And sometimes. do what you love doing it, so it's not like work. Work it's is a little more... deceiving. When you come into this building, it looks interesting to some people, but we're the ones who sandblasted the walls, put the floor down, did all the painting. Mm. We didn't even have running water or a bathroom in this building when we bought it. Mm. It was an abandoned wreck. It's all we could afford. But we could handle everything else. So that's why I said a half an hour or so ago, I think I spent as much time doing carpentry and work around here, trying to fix the building up. Painting the ceiling, repairing the windows. Well, it was a, it was a real m- mess in here when we bought this place. And, the and bricks were all loose. But understanding too that um, it's the same with the machines. Though you had to maintain your machinery. There's nobody that's mm-hmm. going to help you. Yeah. You have to be totally independent to be able to take care of every aspect. Because all the engineers that monotype are gone. I guess. That's true. That's true. And the people who had the answers are gone. Yeah. I'm, I'm just interested in the collecting side of things because I'm, I'm a big collector and so are our listeners. So did you see these matrices as sort of, a, okay, I've got my list. I'm going to get them all. Somewhat. I, I, before I forget, though, I first have to explain that in the very beginning, in 1973, without much really training before i was afraid of this stuff because i never knew in the morning when i started up what would happen sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't work but i realized in time there was always a pretty good reason for things it was designed to work and work reliably and work well and eventually i got the hang of it and then eventually the time came where i would roll up my sleeve and challenge the machine to give me trouble here it can easily give me a lot of trouble, so I didn't push it. But I thought, whatever happens, I'm going to learn real fast here, and this is not going to be a problem again. So as the years went by, we made things better and better. We figured out problems and so forth. And now, many of the things we do are done without a lot of worry or anxiety that many, many years ago, because from the very beginning, I was pretty much on my own. Right. Yeah, because as we say... Um, if most, it didn't work, there wasn't anyone really to call. We just had to kind of, well, maybe tomorrow we'll get it fixed. We'll figure something out. What about other people so, calling you? I mean, imagine that Sometimes happens. people do yeah. call me with some yeah. problems. I try to help them. Yeah, there aren't as many people to call anymore. No. But the collecting of the matrices was, in the beginning, what I really began to fall into. Because I realized that we could not do the letterpress printing unless we had our own typecasting monotype facilities. Well, getting all the heavy machinery was one thing. But it was the faces that people don't care how it's cast or who does what. They want to see Centaur or Bembo, a certain particular typeface. Dante, that's what they're buying 
So how many in total did the Monotype company put out? Well, Monotype came up with several hundred typefaces. But of them, there are maybe 20 that are the great, famous, classic book typefaces that will always be sought and always be popular. Probably at the top of the list, you would have a name like Centaur, which was designed by Bruce Rogers, an American designer, because he happened to be in England at the time. It was produced by the Monotype Corporation in England, not Lanston. But anyway, that's a great type, and Bembo, several others. Their Gil Sand series, if you like sans serif types, has always been successful. I mean, you pick up any magazine today and find in some of the advertising typography Gil Sands. Mm-hmm. So it's a real classic. Not not the kind of thing that have, that dates printing or in time people get tired of. Yeah, they're classics and you know? they're timeless. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so if people buy cases of type from us, they'll have type that will always be always be timeless. Very, whatever they do with it, it'll still look good. I mean, if they may, they may not know really how to do typographically something to design it well. Yeah. But if you set it in Bembo, for instance, or Dante, somehow it'll look good. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, there'd be some people that would argue with that, I'm sure, because you, you obviously, otherwise anyone could be doing what they do. But you're yeah. suggesting that the well, there are a lot of people who is... think they can design typographically. Yeah, and when they get uh, teased into using some unusual typefaces, they betray themselves. But if they just stuck to Bembo, whatever they did, it would look good. Okay, I can hear that you were a fan of this particular face. Then, well, yeah. we have about fifteen of the great classic typefaces. And I think in total, I'd probably put the number close to 20 or so total. A lot of shops would have said years ago, just focus on one or two or three and don't have so many. So I feel I already have a lot in having about 15 different typefaces here. We have great originals like Garamond, Baskerville, Earhart, Wallbound, Bembo, Van Dyke, Bell, Bembo, of course, and Dante, and Centaur. We have things like Octavian, Perpetua. Here's Jan van Krimpen. Yeah, that's Lutetia. The typefaces were very similar. I think this was the first in that, and I'm talking about the uh, Iliad of Homer there by the Limited Editions Club. That was the first, uh, whatever type it was, it was the first introduction of it to North America. Okay, so there's that, that one aspect of the business, and then there's the actual printing aspect of the business, right? That you We discovered early on that in order to pay bills and earn a living, there was much more money in setting type than in doing the letterpress printing. At least the jobs came to us for typesetting as opposed to letterpress printing. A lot of our early work for the first 20 years was setting a catalog, a museum exhibition catalog, for instance, in monotype, pulling reproduction proofs, and then thousands of copies would be printed with beautiful artwork and photographs and color color printing for something like a catalog or a trade book. And that's really how we got going. And, and Because the best typesetting in, ni- in the 1970s was still monotype, okay? And even into the early 80s. If people wanted something really, really well done, it was monotype. Now, back in the uh, early 80s, 
I'm not sure. I don't have. The, I don't know the exact years, but the the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel was covered with centuries of smoke and soot, and a lot of effort had been expired on years of cleaning and restoration of the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. Okay, when it was all done, Random House, the publisher in New York City, wanted to do a big, monstrous, multi-thousand-dollar, two-volume set of the entire ceiling, little sections all photographed and reproduced in color and everything. Really beautiful job. All printed um, in really nice special process color. I think in Japan, might have been Italy, and then I, they were bound, I believe, in Switzerland. But they wanted a really nice classic typeface. Uh, they wanted Bembo. They wanted the best they could get. They could not get it anywhere except from Winnie and me. So in the back of the book, this two-volume, $2,000 edition on the restoration of the Sistine Chapel, you'll see how the book was printed by such and such conglomerate in Milan, <laughs> and was bound by such and such conglomerate in Switzerland or so, but it was set by Michael and Winifred Bixler. <laughs> and it's great. only because the people in New York, every step they wanted the best paper, the best printing, the best binding, and so forth. Wow. It was They were very proud of it. Yeah. And we could come up with typesetting then, this was 20 years ago, that they could not do digitally. When we provided them with the original hot metal type that was designed back in the 1920s and the 30s, and they liked very much. Now we would not be considered. They digitally they can do it as well or better. Right. So our future now is in providing metal type for letterpress printing, yeah. where it's punched into the surface of the paper. Whereas as if you as you go back to the 1970s and 80s, our work was really the typesetting was. We would pull a few reproduction proofs, and then the metal would be dumped, melted down, recycled. Now we print from the metal, but most of it's shipped out to other other letterpress printers. Most of what? The type we cast the type. here. Yeah, okay. Crispin is a really good example. It's With the Barbarian books, Press. Barbarian Press. Yeah. yeah. He wants the type, and we can not only provide him with a type, but we can set it as well on monotype. Okay. And he would be almost perfectly happy just to get fonts and then hand set it himself. Yeah. But it's more practical, really, in this day and age, it is the 21st century, to at least let us do it on the monotype. And then he can adjust it and make changes if he really, really wants to. Okay. What about the actual letterpress printing itself? You do some of that, too, right? Yes, yeah. Maybe you could uh, give us, again, if we put on the collector's hat, what have you done? What are you most proud of? What do you think would be most interesting for a collector to go after of your letterpress, fine press output? Well, the letterpress printing here is very secondary to the monotype composition. That's where we put the time and the money and so forth. But we have two very nice Vander Cooks and we have two Heidelberg cylinder presses. So we can print on a production press a sheet as wide as 32 inches. Now, when he does the diplomas for the Juilliard School, and this is an example of where they want one impression, not two or three, ten or a hundred. So she will hand set and letter space the name in 30 point centaur caps and put it in the press and print one, okay? <laughs> Take the name off, put another one, print yeah. one, one copy. Yeah. There are over 300 of these diplomas to be printed, yeah. and each one is a printed letterpress. You can see the metal bite into the... So you can't duplicate that on a 
on a on a laser printer. Mm. Is it a laser printer? What's the printer? I guess not. Yeah. Well, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Um, Some photo. The letterpress process. impression is respected and not something you can duplicate with a modern printer. It's you have to have metal type and and yeah. a, a lot. So. We go from doing editions of one copy for a certificate yeah. to several hundred copies of, say, a book. Yeah. Um, I think the largest press run was for um, the Brooke Astor job, and that was 4,500, 4,500 copies. And that was quite a while ago. That um, was a that was the uh, we, invitation and well, it was a booklet that was hand booklet. sewn with some photographs printed in it by another okay. printer. Okay. And and our one of our typefaces that people seem to like a lot, Dante. Okay. So, um, well, but the letterpress printing is something we wish we could do more of, but mm-hmm. we just don't have the time for it. Do you, is there a bibliography of your output? <clears throat> How many books have you produced? Nancy Heal at Wells College started a bibliography. When he, it's on a computer somewhere, you know she that? Lost well, there was a bibliography, okay. and it would include hundreds of books, um, because most of our work was really done for offset printing, okay? Right. Letterpress is different. That's what I'm interested and in. I don't think I could give you a figure in that, because most of the letterpress books were printed from our type were printed by other people. Okay. In other words, we're not, we just don't have the time and energy no, no. to provide everyone else with type, monotype composition. No, no, well, it's just two of you. Set, and then yeah. do our own books. No. <laughs> um, did you ever work with Rocky Steinauer? Yes, 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 we did. You know, and he was an inspiration, too, because he had one of the nicest monotype shops in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, monotype was strictly a means to an end, but it, it overtook me and became an end in itself. I wanted to collect and have a lot of really fine things that had no economic value. Rocky would uh, limit himself, or did limit himself, to just three basic typefaces, Bembo, Baskerville, and Bell. Mm-hmm. So I think they may have had a couple of others. but uh, Yeah, I, I bought their uh, typeface... Uh of catalog that they mm-hmm. showed to the clients. Yeah. Uh, I, well, a lot of that was probably digital or some other. The the hot metal at Steinauer ended a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I think they still maintained it, but um, they could set things much faster and more cheaply or inexpensively yeah. by film yeah. than by hot metal. I was interested in the process and the technology, mm-hmm. and I like the bite of the metal into yeah. the surface of the paper and so forth. Yeah. And very sadly, I think I'm beginning, I'm approaching that point in the building of the shop to the point where I think I have enough and we could go ahead and start doing a series of books. The roof has been fixed. Some of the lights have been fixed. Not all of them. We got the walls all cleaned okay. up, you know. And I'm beginning to see now how I could do doing some printing. But... It would be nice to be able to make paper first. Now, so, again, we're going back to the theme here of the captain yeah. of the ship, the owner of, of so Who everything. Built the ship. What about the ink? Are you going to make the ink? When I was at RIT, I wanted to follow in the same footsteps of people like Gaudi and 
Victor Hammer. William Morris, start my press by designing my own typeface. Mm -hmm. So I designed a typeface, and I had the matrices engraved in Japan and so forth. Worked real hard on it. It was a lot of fun. But the... It just was dreadful compared to the great types that were available, principally from English monotype. I realized I can't spend my life reinventing the wheel. Right. They're really nice typefaces already, okay? okay? Ink. I couldn't begin to understand how to make ink as, as well as the ink that you could buy from, from various places. We don't use a lot of ink. In fact, we probably spend more money here on rags and solvent than we do on ink. Just about everything we might buy around here costs more, even paper clips probably, than the, the amount of ink we use. In fact, half the ink we buy and use is discarded. It skins over, scraped off, cleaned off mm -hmm. the press and so forth. But there have always been ink makers in Germany and now in Hostman Steinberg in Toronto, Canada, that can make ink better than I could ever make. I'm happy just to buy it. Paper's different, though. Okay. It's one of these things where you think you can do better? Well, there's so many people, middlemen, between the mill in Germany or Spain and us here. And everyone who gets a pallet of paper marks it up and doubles it. Mm -hmm. So a 20 cent or 30 cent sheet of really nice paper made somewhere in Europe costs $1.50 by the time it comes here. And then because it's in a big standard size, but my book is this size, about 20% of the sheet is just trimmed off and thrown away. So, and that's even more wasteful. I think I could make a better sheet of paper uh, with a little more linen in it, but I'd really like to incorporate a watermark of the author or something so that the book printed could never be mistaken for something else. If we ma made it ourselves, we could not only make it without waste, yeah. and wasting a lot of money paying middlemen between here and Germany or Spain. But we could incorporate a unique watermark for each edition or each each book. So, uh, is this something we, we can look forward to? Yes, you bet. But I would have said that 20 years ago. Are you gonna, I haven't given up. You, so you are investigating making paper here then? Yes. Yes. It's true. Yeah. And so let's say someone listening to this who's got a little bit of money and who's an author and they want a book like this, they can call you up and you'll do it for them? Love to do it, especially if we could make their, the paper ourselves. The, making the paper would complete the circle, okay? Yeah, that's right. We cast the type and we can do the printing. We've tried binding and so forth, but everything is so labor-intensive that we're sometimes defeated by mo modern economics. If we can't stay in business, we're of no help to anyone. Yeah. Well, as long as you're doing, as you say, what you love and what you love and getting paid enough to keep the... I, I think things. that's the big payoff. This, the, the hope in the beginning was, if nothing else, to at least be able to earn a living. You're, and I wasn't too sure where to go for a job or who would hire me. Yeah. And it just seemed better to work for myself. I worked with David Godin for a couple of years, but what I really wanted was my own ship. And in order to have it, I had to build it. There's a little story, and many of them I've forgotten about acquiring our different typefaces and yeah. so forth. Yeah. But one of the more interesting ones was this black letter here. Yeah. Um, it's called Socks Involved. S-A-C-H-S-E-N-V-A-L-D. Socks Involved. It was designed um, in Germany originally by a student of the famous Rudolf Koch, this guy here. And in Germany, before it was made into type, Bertolt Volpe, the Koch yeah. student, 
called it Bismarck Schrift. But Volpe um, escaped from Germany. He worked for Faber. Yes. He did a lot of yes. jackets for but them. But Stanley Morris and the great Stanley Morrison, who was instrumental in this great program of typefaces at Monotype in England, mm. worked very hard to help Berthold Volpe escape from Nazi Germany. Okay, okay. He yeah. was Jewish, and he almost didn't get out. They didn't have much for him to do in England, and Morrison encouraged him to work with Monotype to kind of put this typeface, which was called, which he had called previously in Germany, Bismarck Schrift, into metal, okay? Well, they changed the name from Bismarck Schrift, since it was engraved in England during the war yeah. at Monotype, uh, socks involved. And I'm not sure what that means. Something like woods? Not too sure. Okay. But anyway, um, Monotype made two sets of matrices for this type in a variety of sizes, 18, 24, 30, 36 point, up to 48, 60, and 72 point. And um, mm. unfortunately, the type came out at a time when people around the world really did not like German black letter. Even today, looking at it, I mean, it's so connected to the Nazis. It you seems know? to be that way. Despite it being beautiful and interesting um, to look at. If it, in another world, it would be much loved, but I think, unfortunately, today, this early letter form, generally and very broadly referred to as black letter, is not as admired or liked as it should be. Gutenberg Bible's in black. Yeah, uh-huh, sure. Because so. he was imitating the scribal hands of the day. That's what people were used to seeing and reading and expected, so he was trying to make his printing look as much as this, the hand of a scribe as possible. Yeah. In fact, he even designed certain letters in different set widths because as a scribe copies things, certain letters are sometimes a little wider to fill out the line or a little tighter to squeeze it in yeah. to create a justified line. But anyway, Monotype made two sets of these mats in a variety of sizes. Nothing else, okay? Yeah. One set was kept in England and one set was sent to Berlin. Somehow, I don't know whether it was during the war, after the war, or what. But um, monotype, no one wanted the type, and they eventually got rid of it. They discontinued it. A friend of mine managed to get the mats that I think were originally in Germany. He never used them. He just kind of stored them and kept them and so on and forth. And eventually I inherited them. Where would he have gotten them from? Like a printer in Germany somewhere? I th- well, they, belong- they were the property of Monotype in England. Oh, okay. And Monotype had come out with an inventory of all kinds of things that they never used or hadn't used in, say, 10 years. Okay. And this was on the list. And this friend of mine, Norman Fritzberg in Minneapolis at the time, found out about this. And he somehow said, well, listen, I'll buy them. Don't scrap them for the brass. They passed from one person to another, and eventually we got them here. It sounds like you're still fascinated by all of this. Yeah, I think 40 I years on. Yeah. I'm very lucky in one hand that I've always known what course I wanted to take, but the other side of that is um, I've missed out on a lot of things because I'm just not interested. But, I mean, if you're completely in, in interested life, in one thing, yeah. that's, who cares, right? Well, Winnie will say, gee, why don't we go somewhere? And say, where would we and go? You, you get up and say, hey, I'm where I want to be. I'd go to Maine, but we can buy lobster here. <laughs> okay. Just finally, then. That's our pet goose. I love that. Yeah, that's going to be We have three good. of them out there. Yeah. They're, they're now permanently in the dog pen. They're in the doghouse. Well, they were not, they be were eight, and they, okay. they decided to just go adventuring. And uh, at night, wolves are 
we don't know a fox or so. They were uh, cold. So we have three of them left, and one of the most important, Bob, is saying hello. He realizes you're being interviewed here and wants... Probably. Wants in on it. Yeah. I think the achievement for winning in me is selecting a a craft that everyone else has sort of turned their back on. At least they did 30, 40 years ago. And managing to uh, earn a living. I mean, you come into this building, it's a very nice building, and we're lucky enough to have some people upstairs who pay us monthly rent when we don't get money for type. But um, it's all come with an extraordinary price. I think I've spent at least 30 years here. There's always something that's remaining to be fixed. But it's taken 30 years of restoration in the building to get to this point. And this is the point where I wish we had been 30 years ago so that I could embark on work similar to what the Grabhorns had done. Is that the future? What is the future? What is the next uh, decade? Winnie can answer that. I hope we can make paper here and then do at least a couple of books before it's too late. Yeah. I think part so- of the future is the education part. Educating people to why is this of value now? Mm-hmm. And what's it going to be like in the future for books? And where does this play in doing a letterpress book with metal type? What's it going to be like in 20 years? Is it going to still be around? And is there a value in that? And will people understand Will, will people really understand? And part of our uh, mission, I think, in the, into the future is not only completing our circle, but we really want to inspire people to use this technology, to learn it, to come here, to talk to us. I think it's exciting to have younger people come here and learn uh, the Wells College Summer Institute. That's a week where people can come here and they can figure out a project and we help them to achieve it. And it's exciting. It's exciting to see how they can take some something of metal and do what they want to do. It may not be the way it was done 20 years ago, but it's something that they can understand. Because in the future, something printed in metal, you'll be able to tell the difference between that and printed with, say, plastic. It really is. So when they, uh, what do they do when they come here? <laughs> well, for example, with the Wells College Summer yeah. Institute, it's how does that work? Week. It's a week? It's an entire week. They stay at Wells College, and they bus them here. Okay. And then um, I communicate with them ahead of time as to what they would like to achieve. And then we work together to help them achieve their goal and teach them what they want to know. I think part of our future is really educating and inspiring, I hope. And that's just one week during the summer, or is it a bunch of weeks? Five days, one week. Just one week, okay. And they can contact... Wells College, where's that? In Aurora. Aurora. About 40 okay. minutes, 45 minutes from here. And do you guys want to do more of that kind of work? Oh, I think it'd be wonderful. Okay. I mean, uh, we want to do our, our work too, but there's something great about getting people excited. Yeah. There's something yeah. wonderful about it, and we want right. people to know how to do this. We want to spread the word. And so um, the few people who are interested in attending these courses around the country and coming to Wells has a nice book arts program too, handbook, binding, calligraphy, letterpress printing, okay. so on and so forth. And it would be nice to, if we can be of any help or a part of this, this uh, small circle of people trying to save or preserve letterpress printing, not as a, as a commercial business, but as a craft and an art. Mm-hmm. We're happy to be part of it. Okay, I'm sold. I'm coming. Well, what a wonderful invitation, and, and thanks for uh, 
sharing your uh, passion and congratulations on doing what you love and getting paid for it. It's been a real pleasure to meet you.